Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with Danny Bernstein, author of DuPont Forest, A History, a celebration of the natural beauty of DuPont Forest and the journey that local activists and the DuPont Corporation underwent to protect it. Filled with compelling personal interviews, interactive hiking guides, beautiful photos, and thoroughly researched history, hiker and author Danny Bernstein showcases the deep resilience and determination of Southern Appalachia. A review in the Smoky Mountain News had this to say about the book. At the heart of Bernstein's book are stories, not stories pulled from a textbook or a magazine or even from old letters and journals, but rather stories gathered one by one from personal conversations with the people who lived them. Danny, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, this is great. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yep. Now, I want to talk about how you, um, you know, went from uh, whatever you were before to this passion for the, for the outdoors. You're a hiker, a hike leader, an outdoor writer. You've been committed to hiking since your early 20s. Um, what did you do for your day job and how did your hiking complement that? Well, my day job was I was in computer science way before computing was cool. Um, I was a software developer for Bell Labs, you know, part of AT&T in those days. And then I was a professor of computer science at a state university in New Jersey. Mm. But my husband and I 
always hiked. We discovered hiking as when we got married. And um, in my early 20s, um, we certainly did not grow up hiking. We were both city kids. Yeah, and you've uh, you've completed the Appalachian Trail, all trails in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, uh, the south beyond 6,000 peaks, the Mountain to Sea Trail, and three Camino de San... Oh, you've done the, the Camino uh, way, right? Right. Yeah, that's great. So... The fact that you were in computer science and science, you interviewed a lot of uh, engineers who worked for DuPont, you know, and we're going to be talking about that during the show today. Uh, did that help you understand <laughs> these people better, better given your own background? I think so. Um, my late husband was a chemical engineer, not for DuPont, but he was a chemical engineer. And um, my feeling is I never think this is, quote, too technical. So if I didn't understand it, and believe me, there was a lot I didn't understand, I just kept asking questions and, re- and bringing it back to them. And they were so happy to educate me. Yeah, but you said that they were, uh, they were very matter of fact, they, they, they actually showed up on time because they're punctual like engineers should be. Right. Uh, I like this little quote from the book. You said, uh, years ago when I told my parents I was going to marry an engineer, your dad was thrilled. He said, Engineers make the best husbands, uh, which at the time seemed absurd to you. But you said overall, engineers are smart, dedicated to their job, make a good salary, and are too busy or indifferent to cheat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. I've been ma- I was married almost fifty years. That's great. That's great. Well, talk about the intersection here a little bit between um, the forest and Dupont, because. Uh, you know, you, you actually go back and research this story from the early beginnings when people were making their way up to this area, uh, pretty much on rough roads, and uh, there was a buck lodge cabin and so forth. But then along comes DuPont um, and puts this plant to produce silicon sort of right in the middle of this beautiful, lush forest and uh, kind of took care of it for years. And uh, there's you know, DuPont is central to this story. Talk about DuPont and its role in this in the store here? Well, uh, DuPont is an, a multinational company. And even in those days, in those days, I mean the 1950s, it certainly had its finger in a lot of pies. And so it was looking for a place to place a silicon plant, you know, silicon, silicon chips. And uh, that was the future in the late 50s. And the technology in that those days said that you needed clean air and water. So they had scouts look up and down the East Coast, and they found this uh, piece of land, which technically is in Cedar Mountain between Brevard and Hendersonville. And and by that time, there were two major landowners. Like everything else in Appalachia, there were lots and lots of settlers, but little by little, they sold to bigger landowners. So by the time DuPont came around, they, they were dealing with two major landowners. Yeah, and DuPont then set up their plant there. They, they became a major employer for the community. Um, and you talk in the book about how it was sort of a idyllic place to work. If you, you know, you, you had good benefits, you had good, good wages, but then you had this beautiful landscape around a little playground for the, for the employees who worked there. That's right. Um, they felt that this was pretty isolating. Most of the engineers and the technical people came from outside, mostly from New Jersey. 
Um, and uh, the plant people, the people on the line, they lived, they were locals. And um, so this was their, uh, this was their playground. They could hunt, they could fish, they could hike, they camped. And um, they also built a lake, Lake Deera, which is not one of the lakes that you can see right now, um, for, for the families. And I interviewed not just DuPont employees, but children of DuPont employees, which, of course, aren't children anymore. They're in their 50s <laughs> through 70s, to talk about what it was like to grow up DuPont. So, uh, yes, and they, DuPont itself was there for almost fi uh, 50 years. Yeah, so part of this uh, story that you tell is about how DuPont Forest came to be this uh, state park, uh, but also the, sort of the rise and fall of DuPont and, you know, what it did in the, for the community. Um, when it did leave, finally, um, that had an economic impact on the region, did it not? Yes, it did. Um, it left in several steps because when DuPont announced it was selling the plant, not closing it, selling it. Um, it was bought by an uh, investment company called Sterling Diagnostic, which only bought about 2,200 acres of this 12,000 acres. And the rest, a DuPont company, uh, sold the land to the state at bargain basement prices. Many people say they just gave it away. So what you had when DuPont, come, the company, left is you had this large ring around the plant. And you had 2,200 acres with th three major waterfalls, and in the center was the plant. But this mm -hmm. company was not going to stick around for very long. Yeah, and so that went through some uh, another sale, I think, to an investment group, and then uh, – and we're going to get to the part about what's there and the beautiful hiking and what you can see and what you can do there. But I think this story is important because, uh, but for some uh, ingenuity by some state officials, I think the attorney general at the time and also Governor uh, Hunt, who is a longtime governor of North Carolina, uh, this might not have been, right? I mean, it, it was sort of an 11th hour condemnation of a developer who was going to put houses next to these beautiful waterfalls before the state came in and said, no, this is not going to happen. We're going to take this property. Talk about that just a second, the importance of that. Okay. Well, when Sterling Diagnostic left, they sold it to, uh, they sold the plant to Agfa. You've heard of Agfa film, but Agfa only wanted exactly where the plant was, 450 acres. So the rest uh, Sterling sold to a developer. And when you sell to a developer, you better know that that's what's going to happen. They're going to develop. And this was going to be the cliffs at Brevard. And that piece of land, about 2,200 acres, had three major waterfalls on it. And when this, was, when this came out, the locals were incensed and they organized immediately uh, it, it, and brought this to the attention of the state. And this was the year 2000, so we're celebrating the 20th anniversary. Uh, and um, after a lot of organization and emails and phone calls, uh, at the 11th hour, as you said, uh, Governor Jim Hunt uh, said, 
we're just going to take it by condemnation. Now, of course, condemning land does not mean you get it for free. And the state really had to pay uh, the developer quite a bit because he had made some improvements, but not the amount of money that he ended up paying. Yeah. Well, that that, uh, had a good uh, ending. I'm I'm curious, when did you first find out about uh, all the amenities that uh, DuPont uh, Forest had to offer? Well, um, we moved here in 2001. And I Im- we immediately joined Carolina Mountain Club, which is the largest hiking club in the area, maybe in the state. And DuPont Forest was part of where we hiked. And by 2001, we had an intact forest. Now, I want to stress almost intact, because right now, as we speak, there is still a donut hole in the center of the forest where the company is still cleaning up. So, uh, but that's only the 450 acres that actually had the plant. And the rest had all these trails and waterfalls, et cetera, which is when we discovered it. Yeah, that's great. Well, let's talk about the, uh, I like to talk about the book cover with the authors. Uh, Of course, the listeners can't see it, but they can check it out in the show notes uh, at charlottereaderspodcast.com. But uh, uh, of course, a simple title, DuPont Forest, A History, but you've got, uh, uh, t- tell us about the variety of photos that appear on the cover, and then I want to talk to you some more about the, the, the photos in the book. Okay, well, the top is Triple Falls, one of the six waterfalls that we have uh, on this piece of land, and then we have a um, picture of what they what is called hearts of busting, uh, which uh, are beautiful red seeds. Um, down at the bottom, of, not only do we have six waterfalls, but we have five lakes. And this is Lake Julia, which is the biggest lake there, because that's a whole other story as to how the lakes came about. And down at the bottom right are two kids enjoying uh, mountain biking. Yeah, and just to orient the listeners here, we're talking about uh, this is near Brevard, North Carolina. You actually are in Asheville, not too far from this this area here. And uh, the the thing about this book that I really uh, enjoyed as I was reading it was all of the pictures, even some that go way back uh, to the eight, 1800s and early 1900s. This picture of Buck Forest Hotel, which is sort of a hunting hunting club early on, and then you get uh, on into the later years, you've got pictures of the plant, the people working in it, and then all of the the beautiful scenery. What was the challenge of getting all these photographs and, and getting them into this book? Well, I got these f- photographs in three at least three major ways. Uh, the modern ones I took, and um, I am so lucky that I took pictures of some things that are no longer there because the State Forest Service took them down. Um, the really old pictures I got from the Transylvania County Library, which ha- is a treasure trove of photographs and information. I spend a lot of time at the Transylvania County Library. And a few pictures that really look professional, I got from the Hagley Library in Wilmington, Delaware. The Hagley Library is a library, is a corporate library. It started out being created by DuPont, but now it holds information on corporations. 
So um, basically three different ways. Yeah, that's great. And uh, this book is not, you know, it's not really what you think of as a normal hiking book with, you know, with trail maps and that kind of thing. You you went deeper than that. And I'm just curious why you wanted to do that. Why, you know, because it's one thing to sort of map out an area to hike, but you, you dove down below the surface to kind of figure out, you know, how this came to be. Well, my first two books were hiking books, were what I call turn-by-turn hiking books. This was not going to be that. First of all, there's not enough, there aren't enough trails or miles of trail to make it make DuPont a book. But I, uh, I just wanted to give the reader a feeling for what it's like to hike in DuPont, especially if you have the experience of having hikes in Pisgah Forest or in the Smokies, which are also in this general area. And uh, it's a social place as well. And as you can tell, I love to meet people. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, uh, this might be a good time then where we uh, have our reading on Charlotte's podcast, uh, a part of our brand where authors give voice to the written words. And I'm going to have you uh, start at a good place at the beginning, which kind of sets up a little bit about uh, the forest and your passion for why you decided to do what you did. How did an industrial site become a forest, attracting hikers, equestrians, and mountain bikers from all over the United States? This story is about Southern Appalachian grit and self-reliance, a multinational company's generosity, local activists, and of course, a forest, now protecting thousands of acres of trees, lakes, and waterfalls. The first hike I took in DuPont Forest was to High Falls. Like other visitors, I gawked and stared at the falls as I clicked one shot after another. It was a spectacular waterfall. Then I turned around and spotted a tall chimney on a hill. I walked up the wooden steps and saw that the chimney had a fireplace on two sides. A date had been engraved in the concrete. No other clue no plaque, no signs. I was not in a museum, but I knew there was a story here beyond the waterfalls. I fell in love with DuPont Forest on that first hike when I visited only a few years after its creation. If the six iconic waterfalls in DuPont State Recreational Forest were more difficult to reach, if they involved a long backpack they would be featured in National Geographic magazine. Instead, Western North Carolina is so lucky to have this forest in its backyard with easy accessible trails. Most trails are multi-use. I am a hiker and I like my feet firmly on the ground. I quickly learned to share the trails with mountain bikers, equestrians, dog lovers, strollers, trail runners, and a few North Carolina Forest Service trucks. Several wide trails were created as roads and are driven by Forest Service staff and volunteers. Before I plunge into the forest's multi-layered history, I need to summarize what the main attractions are now. Six waterfalls, five lakes, several mountains, more than 100 miles of trail, and many artifacts that were built before the land became a state forest. A large chimney, an airstrip, 
a barbecue pit in the most unusual place, a gazebo on a lake, a covered bridge, fancy stone pillars at several forest entrances, and more. Each waterfall has its own beauty, its own rhythm, its own admirers. More than 12,000 acres make up the recreational state forest, the first and only one in North Carolina. This means that the forest strives to encourage recreation while still facilitating some hunting, logging, and other accepted forest activities. DuPont Forest is not untouched wilderness. The terrain in Southern Appalachian has been lived on, tilled, grazed, lumbered, and burned. Western North Carolina and Eastern Tennessee are blessed with an abundance of public land. By the time George Vanderbilt, one of the many heirs to the Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt Fortune, died in 1914, he had amassed 125,000 acres of land. His widow, Edith, sold over half of the acreage to the U.S. Forest Service at bargain prices, creating Pisgah National Forest. Farther west, Great Smoky Mountains National Park was created by land bought from logging companies and small farmers. Every piece of public land in the Southern Appalachians has a human history, some more obvious than others. But DuPont Forest history is still unfolding in the news, maps, and trails right now. Even the name tells us that the multinational company had and still has a major part to play in the future of the forest. Yes, that DuPont. Better Living Through Chemistry DuPont. E.I. DuPont Nemours, located in Wilmington, Delaware. What can we learn about industry's role in saving land and making it public? When I was a newcomer to the area, I asked about the history from fellow hikers. I got bits and pieces of information based on folklore and hearsay. The facts differed based on how long my companions had been in the area. Everyone had a different opinion on the forest past. So I decided to dig into it myself. I got facts and recollections from many sources and tried to fit together the jigsaw puzzle that is DuPont Forest history. I searched for a book on DuPont Forest history. While there must be hundreds of books on Great Smoky Mountains National Park and several on the Blue Ridge Parkway, none had been published on this forest. How was that possible? I spent two years talking to people from all aspects of DuPont Forest, past and present. DuPont Corporation retirees, North Carolina legislators, North Carolina state forest rangers, conservation leaders, natives, friends of DuPont activists and forest users. I was determined to put the story together. So... Danny, uh, they say that if there's not a book out there that you want to read, you should go write it yourself, right? I guess so. <laughs> Certainly for this one. Yeah. Uh, so you, you did you did provide a, a nice uh, summary here in this reading of the kind of amenities that are there in the park, the natural amenities, the six waterfalls, the five lakes, the mountains, the hundreds of uh, trails that you can follow, plus the unique little artifacts that you see 
the large chimney and the airstrip and that kind of thing. Um, can you kind of put a perspective on it from a hiker's standpoint? That is, if, if someone wants to take their family up there and have a day or something that they would enjoy, what, what kind of things are they going to see and what kind of things are they going to take away from that visit? If you've never been to DuPont Forest, almost everybody goes to what I call the top of the pops, the three main waterfalls that um, High Falls, Triple Falls, and Hooker Falls that you can hike in three miles. And this is the most crowded area, so you should get there early. But it is also the most spectacular area. Especially with high falls, you can get right down to the water. Uh, So that's what I would encourage people to start with. Please get a map. and and, Because right now the visitor center is closed. Get a map and go to these waterfalls. Yeah, always get a map if you're going to hike in a place you're not familiar with, right? Right. Uh, So... Themes of the book a little bit. Uh, you've got, uh, of course, this love of nature, which is a driving force to to writing this book, but also Appalachian grit and self-reliance. Speak to that a moment. Well, um, there was a lot of life in the area on the land before the company came in. And you can see that by t- visiting two cemeteries. One, the Thomas Cemetery is a family cemetery, which means only Thomas's are buried there. And the other one, Hookermore Cemetery, is more of a community cemetery. People in the area were buried there. So um, this is what I mean by grit and self-reliance. Um, a Buck Forest Hotel was built before the Civil War to attract visitors, because there were plenty of visitors coming up to the mountains from the warm lowlands before the Civil War. That hotel kind of fell apart uh, by the early 1900s. And Buck Forest Lodge was a, uh, where this chimney is, was a lodge that was kind of a timeshare. That was a hunt club. Yeah, you talked uh, to a lot of people, as you said, who are now no longer children, but who grew up as children of employees of DuPont and uh it's almost like, you know, sometimes when you're in a beautiful setting, um, you don't notice what's around you. And some of these kids talk later about the fact they didn't really know how well they had it, but they had this playground, um, you know, that was uh, right behind them. They just thought, well, their dad worked at DuPont. They didn't realize that not everybody had all these waterfalls and fun places to play. That's right. And um, one woman uh, said, talked about getting dropped off at 8.30 in the morning at the lake and getting picked up again at 5 uh, all summer. So this is not a common child's experience, even if you do grow up in the country. That's great. Well, the, the book is uh, is full of pictures, full of history. It's also got some information about the, the trails that you can hike. Uh, it's, a, it's an easy read. You can pick it up and flip through it and take it and put it in your uh, knapsack when you're actually out there hiking. But uh, let's shift just a minute, Danny, and talk a little bit about the riding life. We do this on the show with a little time we got left. Um, You're a hiker. Um, Do you carry a notebook with you on the trail to jot down notes? I certainly do. Um, 
I like uh, to uh, just jot down names. I take pictures, thank goodness, from uh, camera phones uh, of, uh, of trails and of signs. It's a lot easier to do it right there than to say, oh, what was that again? And when I come home, I put them in my computer right away, whether I'm going to use them or not. So when did this, uh, your obsession with hiking began at an early age? When did you sort of become obsessed with the idea of recording the sights and sounds around you on these trails? And then how did that then progress to writing about them? Well, when I was working, I was doing what I call Sunday hiking. When hiking on Sunday, vacations, but I never really felt I had the time to understand an area, even though I did lead hikes back in New Jersey. When we moved down here, I was going to make hiking the focus of my life. And I call it my day job, because it is. Uh, And uh, just hiking, as much fun as it is, to me is not very satisfactory unless you understand the land where you are, both physically with a map, and how we got this land, because every piece of land has a story. Hmm. So do you save your little notebooks uh, that you recorded all these thoughts in? No, because I put them right into my computer. Believe me, (laughs) three days later, it would be hard to figure out what I wrote, especially if I'm on a group hike and people are leaving and I'm still writing notes. So it's very messy. Yeah. So how long have you been recording this kind of history of the landscape that you hike? Pretty much since I got here, since 2001, not as methodically as as time went on. It was a lot more methodical. But about four or five years after I got here, and I realized that I really knew this land, uh, at least as a hiker. And that's when the thought of writing my first guidebook came to me. Did you always think you wanted to write a book? Because, you know, you're doing uh, programming, you're doing (laughs) computer stuff, you're married to an engineer, uh, but now you're writing books. So did did, did that, was that always a dream of yours or did it just kind of come naturally with with the hiking of the landscape? It was not a, a dream of mine when I was working. What I wrote a lot of reports so, so as far as grammar and string, uh, sentence structure, yes, I was good with that. But the big challenge, even with a guidebook, was to make sure it didn't sound like a scientific or technical report. Yeah, and part of the way you make that happen in this book is you pull in a lot of uh, the actual language uh, and words of the people that you interviewed. So you get a feel for you know, the people that are attached uh, to, to the land. Um, and we're going to be talking listeners, uh, uh, on our Patreon channel in just a moment, uh, with Danny about, uh, how to write a book about the outdoors. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can jump over to our Patreon channel is patreon.com forward slash Charlotte readers podcast. This is something that the authors and I do together to reward, uh, those of you who support us on Charlotte's podcast, who help us help authors give voice to the written words. So we're going to do that in just a moment. Um, so you can check that out, but, uh, Danny, just a couple of final questions here. Um, how many miles have you hiked? You know, I wish I would have started to keep track when I was 21. 
but I didn't. So I would say many hundreds of thousands of miles throughout my life, but I have no idea. Yeah. And how would you describe the similarities, uh, if there are any, between being on the trail, hiking uh, in beautiful surroundings, and being at your computer sort of lost in the telling of a good story? I think it kind of goes together because when I'm hiking, I think I understand. I mean, I know where I am um, as far as the trail is concerned, but I think I understand. But it's only when you start writing it down that I start having these questions about um, what is off the trail? How did we get the land? Who owns it? And I think if I have these questions, the readers are going to have them too. It sounds like you're just a naturally curious person. I guess so. <laughs> well, Danny, thank you for putting this book together because uh, if you know there wasn't one before, now there is, uh, and people are interested and want to take advantage of this uh, wonderful state uh, park. Uh, I've been to it. I've, I've, I've seen the waterfalls. They are they are beautiful. You got to be careful around the edges sometimes. Don't slip and fall. But uh, you know it's a great, uh, great landscape. So, Danny, I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Readers Podcast. Well, thank you so much. It was such a great honor. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast. Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice, because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.